Exodus 31, <laughs> verses 1 through 18, that's our text this morning. If you'd like to open your Bible there or navigate on your device. How many people are using Bibles? Just, just curious. You got an actual, real, old-fashioned, just Bible. No, I mean a Bible, like a, a paper Bible. Yeah, right on. I don't have one, but anyway, good for you. I should probably hold one, right? Do you think it'd be more spiritual? I could have a man bag on with Bibles in it. How's that? Anyway, I think we're in Exodus 31. We were a few minutes ago. And the topic there, after giving them their work assignments, the Lord shares additional thoughts on observing the Sabbath. The title of our message, Hit Me With Your Rest Thoughts. Let's pray. Father, thanks for our morning thus far. Sweet singing, Lord. Just all of us gathered together and raising our voices and and having that imagery that it's like an incense rising before your throne, pleasing to you because you're our Father and you love us. We pray about your word, Lord, now though it's an ancient text that would speak to us in a modern way. We pray in Jesus' name and those who agreed said, amen. How much rest does your body really need? Type that question into Google and you'll descend into a rabbit hole of research and advice about how many hours you should sleep each day or about how many days you should wait between workouts. I'm working on a Guinness record right now. (laughs) Some of you are ahead of me still, I think, so. What about mental rest? Experts are now saying that, and I quote, it's important to schedule more downtime for your brain. That's a telemarketer, is a person who does that, right? What about spiritual rest? Well, that depends on who you ask. A Sabbatarian is a person who sets aside one day a week as a day of rest in which they do no work. Some of them would tell you it's not only important for spiritual health, but that you might not be going to heaven if you don't set aside the Sabbath. Is setting aside 24 hours a week really our spiritual rest? Well, no, it's not. First of all, people who try to keep the Sabbath have to work really hard to do it. There's so many issues, so many restrictions, and they're always fretting and falling short. But second and most important, our spiritual rest is spiritual. It can't be a certain day of the week because it's now found in a person. It's found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Our work and our rest are the topics of Exodus 31. We'll discover something that you might find surprising. We are to both work and rest simultaneously without ceasing. I'll organize my comments around the following two points. Number one, you have the power to constantly work for the Lord. And number two, you have the promise of constantly resting in the Lord. Let's take a look at work in verses 1 through 11. About once a week, someone on Facebook asks for a recommendation of a contractor for some project in their home. There are always a lot of interesting suggestions on who to use. The most interesting suggestions are on who not to use and the horror stories that follow uh, about these construction projects. God was giving Moses the plans for the tabernacle. All of it was going to require not just a lot of labor, but incredibly skilled craftsmanship. I mean, if you've been here for any of the studies when we discuss the furniture in the tabernacle, you understand that each piece was going to be a -a one-of-a-kind masterpiece. 
The garments of the high priest were like nothing the most accomplished seamstress had ever produced before. And the rest of the fabric work for the tent itself and the fence all around it, no easy task. Think of all that and then remember this. The Israelites were encamped in the wilderness far from the nearest orchard supply hardware store. May they rest in peace. But there was an even bigger issue. The Israelites had been career slaves in Egypt. The men were skilled at making bricks. They weren't woodworkers or metal workers or jewelers or tailors. The women weren't expert seamstresses. There had been no jewelry district or garment district there in Goshen where the Israelites set up shops. How were they supposed to take a pile of donated jewelry, metal, wood, and fabric and build this beautiful tabernacle? Well, let's see. Verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. It always starts with a man or with a woman. God calls a person to the task at hand. God chooses someone. He appoints them. His call rarely makes sense to us. We could list character after character in the Bible who we definitely would not have called but whom God chose and appointed. In fact, it's hard to find a character in the Bible that we would have chosen to do something. And, you know, God obviously has a very different way of picking people. If you think Bezalel was an incredibly gifted artisan, you're missing the point. God doesn't choose on the basis of skill. We do that often to our detriment. We end up picking the wrong person because we're looking at outward traits, it's like when Samuel came to anoint the next king. They lined up the sons in birth order because they thought certainly the tallest, best son is going to be the next king. Turned out to be David, who they decided ahead of time wasn't even worth being in the lineup. And so God has a very different way of picking. He looks upon the heart and then he builds out from there. If you are in Christ, if you are saved, God calls you in all the situations in which you find yourself. So guys, if you're married with children, for example, you're called to be a husband and a father. Some of you may have been fortunate enough to have a good role model in your own dad. Most of you did not. That's not to be pejorative, it's just the truth. Either way, you find yourself called to accomplish something you are terribly untrained and unqualified for. You're called to love your wife as Christ loves the church. I submit to you that no one can do that out of the gate. You're called to raise your kids in the Lord without provoking them in a world that is under the dominion of the God of this world, Satan, and his malevolent rulers of the darkness of this world. To say that your task is difficult is an understatement. You have Christian callings at work and everywhere else. Yet you're nothing more than a former slave who spent most of your time making bricks and building for the gods of the kingdoms of this world. You have none of the skills necessary for your Christian calling. Nothing that you're commanded to do can you do without the help of the Lord. But regardless, you're God's choice to accomplish all these things. Here's how you do it in verse 3. I have filled him with the Spirit of God. They didn't send Bezalel back to Egypt to a trade school where he could become a master craftsman. Neither was this a mere boost to his natural abilities. This was God supernaturally enabling him for the task. God's call always includes his enabling. 
you absolutely can be the husband or the wife or the father or the mother or the employer or the employee that God has called you to be. He wouldn't leave you without the power to do what he's commanded you to do. Now, we don't need to pause here and get a theology of the filling of the Holy Spirit. We talk a lot about the Spirit. We talked about this last week, as a matter of fact. But that would be off point here. What is on point is to receive by faith that God's calling comes with his enabling, that you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. And so there's a place for talking about the ministry of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, the anointing of the Spirit, all these different terms that we use and how they all work. But on the top of all this is the Bible's exhortation that, hey, regardless what your understanding of the Spirit comes to be in terms of a systematic theology, know that when God tells a Christian to do something, they don't have to learn how to do it. They're able to do it, and then they learn how God wants them to do it. It's a little bit different. So you don't necessarily need that book on marriage and to try and figure out five things. Because you you can do all those five things or those 10 things or those 10,000 things and still not have your heart in the thing. Or you can just say, The Lord told me I'm to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. That's a tall order. I'm just going to have to move in that direction with his help. Lord, you you have to help me. And actually, I think it's kind of designed to make you fall on your face because you have to admit you can't do it, but you can do all things through Christ. And so it's this filling of the Spirit. It's the presence of God. But his commands are his enabling. And so when we read the Word in any area and God says, do this, then you can do it. Verse 3, I filled him with the Spirit of God in wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and in bronze, in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood and to work with all manner of workmanship. Now, let's revisit whether or not Bezalel was a master artisan prior to his being called. If he was, he was a desert da Vinci. That could have been his handle on Facebook. He was an artist, a metallurgist, a jeweler, a master carpenter, all manner rather of workmanship was his forte. There was nothing that this guy couldn't do. As I indicated earlier, where would he have learned any of that or practiced it while he was a brickmaker in Egypt? But even more importantly, if Bezalel was that skilled, who would get the glory for building the tabernacle? God or Bezalel? The Sistine Chapel, finger of God, that whole thing. When you see that, do you think of God or do you think of Michelangelo? Well, sadly, you think of Michelangelo and you think this guy, this guy had talent for hanging upside down. (laughs) I don't even like to paint my ceiling with a pole, just one color. He's up there doing all this intricate artwork and stuff, but you very rarely think of you know, the incredible skill that God must have given Michelangelo. And so that's the idea. You don't want to build the temple or the tabernacle rather and all and have the high priest and all of his outfit and all that and people say, man, that Bezalel, that guy can build. Now that he's done with the tabernacle, you think he can help us with our tent? I've got some projects for this. It's one of these things. Like um, guitar makers are called luthiers. Is that correct? I think that's correct that they might make other instruments too. But, you know, over the years, I've had occasion to come across articles where they talk about these guys that you have to put in your order and they, they're like 10, 12, 15 years before they're gonna get to your guitar. And you gotta give them a thousand bucks or 5,000 bucks, you know, and wait 10 years to get your instrument. 
That's Bezalel, if he's that guy that has that incredible skill. Here's another angle by which we arrive at this same conclusion. We see here the Spirit gave God uh, or gave Bezalel uh, wisdom, understanding, knowledge, and workmanship. These first three, wisdom, knowledge, and understanding, clearly supernatural empowerings that Bezalel did not previously possess. So why not the fourth? Why not workmanship? Because we don't think that it makes sense. We, we don't see God just supernaturally gifting this guy to be a metal worker and a woodworker and all of that. Uh, we, sure, he gives him all these other, but he must have had his own talent. And this is where we go wrong in these situations. Because this is a type for us. It's not that God did this all the time, but it's a type for us to say, now in my situation, you know, it's not that God's gonna, you know, I'm gonna pick up a guitar and suddenly be able to play it. You know, that kind of a thing. Because I'm not a guitar, but I am a husband and I am a father and I am a pastor and I am a chaplain and I am whatever else I am. And God says, I, I, can, I can handle this. I can gift you and bless you and fill you to do what you need to do. Workmanship, it's just the supernatural. Why don't we see this more today? Well, we do see it today, but before I can explain what I mean, let's read the next few verses. Verse six, and I indeed, I have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahasamach, of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils, and the laver and its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons to minister as priests. And the anointing oil and the sweet incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. Aholiab and others went to work under Bezalel to build the tabernacle on the earth. The mention of wisdom and of their being gifted tells me that they too were filled with the Spirit. Now we have the blessing of the full revelation of God's word. We have the completed word of God. We know what is happening today and we can look back and see types and figures and illustrations in the things we're reading like we do this morning. Today, Jesus is building his church on the earth. It's not a building made with hands like the tabernacle. It's described like this in the book of Ephesians. It says that we are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. Now, the tabernacle was built on the earth to be the dwelling place of God. God said he would dwell in the holy of holies above the mercy seat that was on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Today, the church on earth is the dwelling place of God. Not this building, not any building we might meet in, not the outdoors if we meet there, but when we meet, God says, that's my building, that's my tabernacle. I inhabit the praises of my people. And so we could look at what's happening here in Exodus and say, Jesus is our Bezalel, and we are his Aholiabs, because the New Testament says that Jesus is building his church and that we are co-builders with him, and that's exactly what you have here. Bezalel was going to oversee this project. He was going to build, and he had the spirit, and then his underlings also had the spirit, and they were going to help him, and so that's kind of the bigger picture that we get. And that's why I can say we have power to constantly work for the Lord because our Christian work is something that goes on 
24 hours a day, seven days a week. To paraphrase Dory, just keep working, just keep working, just keep working, working, working. That's when you do, when you work. Right? Finding Nemo, you know what I'm talking about, right? Anybody not know what I'm talking about, raise your hand. Jeff, I'll see you after. Constantly working for Jesus puts you in really good company. This is a great verse from John 5. Jesus said, my father has been working until now, and I have been working. Wow. God the Father is a constant workaholic on our behalf. And Jesus said he was too. Apostle Paul said to the Thessalonians, you remember our labor and toil, laboring night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. Then in Colossians, Paul said, to this end I also labor, striving according to his working, which works in me mightily. Labor, striving, night and day, in the power of God's Spirit, that is the emphasis of the New Testament illustrated for us here in the Old Testament. Now, I don't know what that means for you. I'm not 100% sure on what it means for me. You'll have to determine for yourself what it means to you to constantly be working for the Lord. That's a personal uh, reflection that you're going to have to make. I can't launch into uh, you know, a thing to where you, you're feeling bad because you don't pray enough or give enough or read enough or do anything enough. I'll tell you right now, none of us does anything enough if you want to just look at outward standards. Uh, you know, and if you think you do, look at the Apostle Paul and you'll you'll start weeping and stuff, you know. Uh, But that's a personal reflection. The Bible says that I am to be working while it's day and and these last days, it's always day. The time is short uh, and so reflect upon that. But just know you'll be in good company and you'll have every resource in heavenly places to accomplish whatever the task is that God has put before you. And one of the resources turns out to be rest. You have the promise of constantly resting in the Lord in verses 12 through 18. First of all, before we read these verses, let me pick out a crucial teaching that we find in them. Verse 13, for the Sabbath is a sign between me and you throughout your generations. Now, uh, verse 16, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations. And verse 17, it is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. Unless Israel is code for God's people anywhere, anytime, then the Sabbath was never intended for Gentiles before Israel, nor was it intended for the church. Israel is not the church. The church is not Israel. We are two separate groups in God's prophetic plan. This is a crucial doctrinal point that we make here at Calvary and other evangelical churches do. You cannot confuse Israel with the church and the church with Israel. God has a very specific and definite plan for the the literal physical descendants of Abraham, the nation of Israel. Some of it's being played out even now in modern history as Israel is a nation again, and we talk about our prophecy updates. But the church is not Israel. When when you read about Israel in the Old Testament, it's not the church. It's a whole different ballgame. We can glean insight from that because God never changes, but we have to keep them distinct. And so when I read this, I see that the Sabbath was a sign between who? Israel, real Israel, ethnic Israel, the descendants of Abraham and God. Our first introduction to the seventh day, Genesis chapter 2, when God rested from his labor of creation. He rested, but it's never given as a sign or an ordinance to anybody 
until Israel under the law of Moses. In the garden, we are not told that God required anything from Adam and Eve except to refrain from eating the forbidden fruit. He didn't say, I've got two commands for you. Don't eat the forbidden fruit and keep the seventh day. He didn't say that because he didn't mean that. They and their descendants were never told to observe the Sabbath after being banished from Eden. Then in Genesis 9, God established a covenant with Noah after the flood. That covenant had a sign. You know what it is. It's the rainbow. No mention of Sabbath keeping there either. In our era, in the church age, we read this in Colossians 2, let no one judge you in food or drink or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. And Paul specifically is saying, don't let anybody burden you with keeping the Sabbath. That is passe. It was a shadow. Now Jesus Christ is the reality. We keep the Sabbath because we have a relationship with the Lord. The weekly Sabbath Israel observed has found its fulfillment in Jesus. It's no longer a day of the week, any day of the week. It's Jesus. And that's why we can say Jesus is our constant rest. So let's read the verses. Verse 12, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak also to the children of Israel saying, surely my Sabbaths you shall keep for it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Notice that it is Sabbaths, plural. We tend to forget there was a lot more to the Sabbath than the weekly observance. Every seventh year was a Sabbath year. The Sabbath day was a rest every week, and this rest was applied to farmland once every seven years. The Israelites were to let their land rest, not planting or pruning their crops for an entire year. And this was so important to God that God punished Israel by taking them into captivity in Babylon for 70 years because that is the number of Sabbath years they owed him. And so it was very serious. The Sabbath year, very, very serious. And then every year after seven cycles of seven years or after every 49 years, every 50th year was called Jubilee. All Captives were set free, all slaves were released, all debts were forgiven, property was returned to its original owners. In addition, all labor was to cease for a year, and those bound by labor contracts were released from them. Now, I could be wrong, but I don't think any Gentile Sabbatarian congregation observes either of these other Sabbaths. If I'm wrong, you can tell me afterwards, but I don't see banners on 7th Street saying that this is the Jubilee year. It is, by the way, according to some Jewish scholars, 2017 through 2018 is, on the Jewish calendar, a year of jubilee. I'm all for jubilee just for canceling my debts. I tried that with some of my credit card companies. I said, it's jubilee. I expect to see a zero next month. Didn't work. And it sounds funny, but here's the thing. Here's the annoying thing. I keep the Sabbath. What about the Sabbaths? What are you talking about? I'm talking about everything that goes with the Sabbath, not just your puny understanding of it. There are Sabbath years and there is the Jubilee and nobody wants to do anything about that. So the people who tell you that they're keeping the Sabbath and then they put it on you, they are keeping some rules and regulations that they made up for themselves which make them seem more spiritual than you. They're not keeping the Sabbath, not in a biblical way at all. So verse 14, 
You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days, but the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. It's comical, really, to read the history of Sabbatarians trying to pin down exactly what is meant by work. You see some of this in the New Testament and the Gospels as the religious leaders are always trying to accuse Jesus of doing work on the Sabbath, uh, some crazy things. As I said earlier, it's hard work trying to figure out what constitutes work. Now, many Christian denominations argue that Sunday is the Christian's Sabbath. That's not true either. Sundown Friday till sundown Saturday is the biblical Sabbath day. We typically meet for worship on Sunday because we see the early church did that in the Bible, not because it has become our Sabbath. Here's something else I don't think I've highlighted before. How is attending a worship service considered rest? It's actually quite a lot of work. We have a lot of people here on campus starting at 5.30 in the morning in order to put church together. We're, it's a joy to do it. I mean, we can't, but, but it's, it's a lot of work. Anytime you get up before 5.30, it's work. You understand? Uh, even if it's fun. But uh, so worship services are work. And so people say, well, you know, worshiping the Lord, uh, even though, you know, it's a lot of work, it's not considered work. Where does it say that? You might say that nothing you do is considered work because it's all done unto the Lord for the glory of God. When you go to work later today or tomorrow, is it really work or is it a ministry that you are performing for the Lord? And so uh, the Sabbath, I don't think, was necessarily intended to be the day of worship. It was a day of rest. Rest to me is sitting in my corduroy chair and sleeping most of the day, thinking I'm watching television. Having Pam say, are you asleep? No. That's, that, that's rest. And, and so that's the idea. Now, verse 16. Therefore, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. It's for Israel as a sign that they are God's chosen people. The fact that God mentions the seventh day of creation doesn't grandfather in everyone else. In fact, if God intended for everyone in human history to observe the Sabbath from the Garden of Eden forward, he wouldn't have to talk this much about it in Exodus because it would have already been a thing since the Garden of Eden. It's clear that Israel was not Sabbatarian until the law was given. And so it's interesting. God says, hey, you've got an incredible amount of work ahead of you. Bezalel, Aholiab, and the craftsmen in putting this tabernacle together, just know you're not going to be working on Saturdays. You're going to take a rest. And God had to reemphasize that because they weren't used to resting on the Sabbath because they had never done it before, not in Egypt, not before Egypt, never. They became Sabbatarians here. He mentions Creation Week as an example of how Israel should approach observing the Sabbath as a time of resting and being refreshed, not because it was a universal law. Now, even though the Sabbath was physical, an Israelite could have seen more in it. He was not to work but to rest. Externally, that meant ceasing from his ordinary tasks in order to meet with God. Internally, it involved ceasing from self-sufficiency in order to rest in God's grace. Salvation has always been by grace. 
God justifies the believing sinner. And even in the Sabbath, there was a picture that you could see of resting in or trusting in God for salvation. Salvation wasn't in all of the activity that the Jews did. It wasn't in the rituals. It wasn't in the diet. It wasn't in any of those things. Those things pointed to salvation by grace through faith. And so it was a, would have been a good meditation for them as well. How is our rest continuous? Well, the New Testament book of Hebrews has a long section on rest. One passage tells us there remains a rest for the people of God. He who entered his rest has ceased from his works as God did from his. Let us enter that rest. And so there's a lot going on there. Uh, There are two types of rest. First of all, he entered into his rest is Jesus. And it's a reference from the writer to the fact that when Jesus died on the cross and said, it is finished, there was a certain rest that he entered into having finished his work of securing the opportunity for salvation for all of those who would believe in him. And so we can talk about a salvation rest. If you're saved, you are resting in the finished work of Jesus. You're saved because he died on the cross and rose from the dead and you put your faith and trust in him, not a work of righteousness by which you would boast, but by grace. And so that's a rest. You rest in your salvation. If you're all Twitter-pated about salvation, wondering if you're saved or lost, wanting to get saved all the time, that's a separate issue, the assurance of your salvation. You may not have assurance, but I'll tell you right now, if you've received Christ, you're saved because all that work was done by Jesus. But then the writer says, there's a rest that we still need to enter into. We're resting in salvation, but what is this second rest? It is resting in the power of the Lord, as we're talking about earlier, to accomplish the task that he's called us to do. Paul the Apostle put it negatively when he said, having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? That is always the problem in the Christian life. You get saved. It's all spiritual, obviously. You don't clean yourself up. You don't make your life right and then come to God and Him accept you. You accept Him. He takes you just as you are, and you're saved. And that's all supernatural. It's all spiritual. But then afterwards, we like to think that we're going to contribute something, that there's some work of the flesh, like keeping the Sabbath or like keeping a certain diet or like being baptized or something like that. And unless we also have that, unless we add that to what is spiritual, then we're not really saved. And the writer's saying, no, it's all rest. You rest in your salvation, and there's a sense you rest in your sanctification as you're changed from glory to glory. God's the one that's promised you. He says, I'm going to complete the good work I began in you. He asks for cooperation, but he says, I'm going to do it one way or the other. You will, if you're a Christian, you will awake in his likeness in heaven. You're not going to be like all two-faced, you know. <laughs> as far as we could get with Gene, he just wouldn't give himself over to sanctification. And so, you know, he's going to have part of him's holy and part of him's ugly in heaven. That's not the way it works. And so that is the rest we're talking about. Came across the following story that illustrates what I'm trying to say better than I can explain it. So listen to this. A man is swept out to sea in a homemade raft. Under pressure of wind and wave, it gives every indication of instant dissolution. The man on board struggles desperately just to keep the raft afloat. His paddle, used repeatedly against the pounding waves, does nothing to bring him any nearer to the shore. 
He looks up from his labors, sees a ship has come alongside. The crew throws him a line and invites him to come on board. He at once abandons his own efforts to save himself and accepts the salvation now offered to him. He is saved. He paces the deck of the great ship with solid planking beneath his feet, massive engines driving the vessel on its way. His standing is now secure. He's taken to the captain who says, welcome aboard, friend. After some conversation, the captain continues, and now we would like your help. We're shorthanded. The cook could sure use some help in the galley. Would you be willing to help? That has to do with his state. His salvation is sure. Nobody's going to pitch him back overboard if he refuses to help. But his gratitude is such that he is only too willing to help get the necessary work done. Helping out on board has nothing to do with salvation. He can rest in that even though a hundred tasks beckon to him now that he is saved. If you are saved, you have the Lord's promise of continuous rest in his salvation, but also in him conforming you into his image. We, like the man on that ship, we want to contribute. We can't wait to, yeah, kitchen work, scullery work, whatever it is, I'll work anywhere tirelessly, ceaselessly, not to earn anything or promote myself, but only because it's the logical uh, you know, conclusion of what has happened in my life. And so this is a continuous rest in the Lord. Jesus said his yoke was easy and his burden was what? Light. And so we should come to him. Verse 18, and when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Seems a little out of place here, but it uh, gives us a good devotional to end with. The tablets of testimony, of course, the Ten Commandments, were told elsewhere they were written on both sides, front and back. Chapter 32, Moses is going to come down the mountain. Israel, sadly, has already broken the law. They're worshiping the golden calf. They're in a drunken orgy. And in a symbolic uh, gesture, Moses takes these original tablets and he throws them down and breaks them. Chapter 34, I think it is, he's back up on Mount Sinai. God writes with his finger a second time, a second tablets. These are the ones that are going to go in the Ark of the Covenant. Now, I discovered something interesting, to say the least, about the fact that God's finger is said to have written the Ten Commandments twice. A lot of times people go off on a tangent, does God have fingers? If God is a spirit, what does his finger look like? And there, there's a place for that kind of talk, whether it's an anthropomorphism or anything like that. But something interesting, I think, if you look at a well-known story in the New Testament, and you'll get this immediately as soon as I say it. In the Gospel of John, a woman who was caught in the act of adultery is brought to Jesus. The Jews say that the law of Moses demands she be stoned to death, and they challenge Jesus to agree or disagree. Either answer is going to put him in trouble. And so the account goes like this. They said, testing him, that they might have something which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down, wrote on the, finger, uh, wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear, so when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now, if you're a Jew and you see Jesus write on the ground with your finger, and if it happens to be the Ten Commandments, now, we're never told, scholars all over the map on what Jesus wrote. We're never told what he wrote. But if you're familiar with the Exodus story and you know that the finger of God wrote the Ten Commandments twice, once on a tablet that had to be broken and once on the tablet that went into the ark, and now here's Jesus who keeps claiming he's God writing on the ground with his finger 
twice, and if it is the Ten Commandments, this is mind-blowing stuff, and you're going to just back away <laughs> because you can't fulfill his uh, law-giving abilities. And, and there he stands as the lawgiver with the woman and tells her, go and sin no more. And so it's a, not saying, Pastor Gene says it was the Ten Commandments. He's a heretic. No, I'm saying that if you read these things in the Bible, they're there for a reason. It's worth reading Exodus just for this one insight. So, you know, sometimes even I think, why am I in Exodus? What is going on? What was I thinking? All the different furniture and stuff. I don't like even furniture in my house, you know, and stuff. But anyway, good stuff, great stuff. It could be that Jesus wrote the Ten Commandments. And so, continuous work, continuous rest. It seems contradictory, but it's not. Our Bezalel fills us with the Spirit to work while doing most of the heavy lifting as our yoke fellow. You are his workmanship, and though it may not seem like it now to yourself or others, you are his masterpiece. Let's pray.